been thinking a lot about friendships over the past 18 months. The forced isolation when the pandemic started felt like a wake-up call for me. Because I don't feel like I've ever been particularly good at maintaining friendships. It has nothing to do with how I feel about the people in my life. The people I know and consider friends are incredibly important to me despite the fact that I don't see or speak with many of them very often. I'm mainly talking about the many friends I've made over the years through theater. The actors, directors, designers, stage managers, and other playwrights. Because up until recently, my day job and my life as a playwright intersected, so the vast majority of the people I knew came from the theater world. There was a time, about a decade's worth, when my job allowed me to meet and make many friends who I would often see at the theater where I worked, or at one of the many other theaters where I would see plays, or in some rehearsal room reading my new work out loud. This context that theater provided allowed these friendships to continue on, many for years. But then, my life changed, and I moved to a new city, and all those friends sort of disappeared. Our context dissipated, and so did our friendships. I met new friends in my new city. The theater makes meeting new people a lot easier than it would be if I was left to my own devices. It was wonderful and made me realize what an abundance of excellent people exist in this theater context I find myself in. But then pandemic, lockdown, isolation. I found myself at first talking to people on the phone I don't normally talk to on the phone, driven by that need to connect. I don't actually use my phone as a phone anymore, so this was a nice nostalgic reminder what voices sound like when you can't see the person on the other end. But time passed, phone calls stopped, and then silence. After the production I had lined up stopped being a real thing, it felt like the context of theater started to disappear entirely, like that photo of Marty McFly's siblings in Back to the Future. I started to wonder if I need the context as a ballast for the friendships. Maybe the vanishing isn't really happening and it's just my excuse to avoid facing the truth that I don't make enough of an effort to hold on to the people I care about. Or what would be harder to admit is that maybe some of these friendships are actually transactional and without that exchange through our shared art. We have little left to hold us together. The irony is, while I was writing these words, a friend called and left a message. Does this mean I can't wallow in self-pity anymore? No. Nothing can stop that. But it does mean I'm not as alone as I think, and context doesn't disappear, it changes. But more importantly, all I need to do is reach out because I'm sure someone out there is wondering what I'm wondering and missing what I'm missing. For those of you listening to this who I don't already know, I hope Context connects us in person one of these days. And if it does, let's exchange numbers and think about calling each other someday.
the Subtext Podcast. My name is Brian James Polak. The Subtext is brought to you by American Theatre Magazine, a program of Theatre Communications Group. This month, my guest is Gina Femia. I had the great pleasure of speaking with Gina in person back in July 2021 during that brief window of time when safely seeing others in person was a real thing for me. I've known Gina through social media for years. I read several of her plays and just became a big fan. A few years ago, I put her name down on an ever-growing list of playwrights I want to connect with for the subtext. Gina's work has been seen and developed at many theaters around the country, such as MCC, Playwrights Horizons, EST, Page 73, Playwrights Center, CTG, Theater of Note, Pandora Productions, among others. Her play Alondra was on the 2019 Kilroy's list and was the winner of the Leah Ryan Prize and runner-up for the Yale Drama Prize. She's the winner, finalist, and semifinalist of numerous awards because everything she writes is that good. And she received her MFA from Sarah Lawrence College where she won the Lipkin Prize in Playwriting. I spoke to Gina in her rad apartment deep inside Brooklyn on July 1st, 2021. I don't know Bay Ridge. I don't know my I don't know my Bay Ridge from my Bensonhurst. Bay Ridge is also South Brooklyn. It's right next to Staten Island. So I grew up right next to the Verrazano Bridge. Okay. Right across I could get to Staten Island. And I'm in Bensonhurst, which is right above Coney Island, which Coney Island is South Brooklyn. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So uh I don't know I don't know why I was just like assuming everybody I ever talked to is not from where they're living. Because that's pretty much what i've seen as the norm yeah (laughs) for theater especially especially in new york city theater yeah there's not a lot of whenever i've told people that i'm from brooklyn they get surprised yeah and they usually say no but where did you grow up and i say yeah brooklyn right (laughs) bay ridge (laughs) because you're supposed to be like brooklyn yeah that yeah and also like The norm is so much that people come here to do art versus people who are from here do art. Right. Or especially theater is what I've noticed. So it's people have called me like a unicorn or treated me as such in theater. (laughs) Right. In New York City theater specifically. So I'm it's something I was surprised by, but I learned to navigate mostly Mm -hmm. by like aggressively writing stories about Brooklyn I think (laughs) (laughs) like that's how that's my coping mechanism right right uh like so what was your uh entree into the theater I love this story so I grew up in in Bay Ridge to parents who also grew up here so they lived their whole lives in Brooklyn and like lived five blocks away from each other growing up and then got married and are still married and but they moved down to florida now which i like to say they fulfilled the prophecy and went down right right Um, (laughs) but them growing up in in brooklyn and in new york and you know commuting into new york they knew uh, theater in terms of broadway and they used to go it used to according to them be much more affordable and you know their stories about broadway was are really great um but So we grew up, me and my sister grew up also going to Broadway, which was always like a big deal because it is so far (laughs) and Mm -hmm. so tenuous to get into the city from Bay Ridge. Like, it's just a long trip. And my parents were both 
very working class and, you know, would work during the week, very, you know, long hours. And then so going, we'd only be able to go for like a matinee on a Saturday every like once a year or so. But they loved musicals and would take us to musicals. So my first Broadway play is probably Cats. It's either Cats or Beauty and the Beast, but I consider it Cats. Mm -hmm. And it was like my parents' favorite musical or my dad's at least. And so it was like also mine. And so we just grew up with the backdrop of musicals on Broadway. And that was really what I thought of theater was musicals. Mm -hmm. And so when I, I always wrote, I was always a writer and used to write short stories and things like that. And my dad saw one day this like free young playwrights class and enrolled mm -hmm. me. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do that because I, I can't write music. Cause I really, you thought, were just like, you have to, there's only musical theater. There isn't anything else. Yes. I was right? like musicals is theater. And thankfully was taught that there were, it wasn't, that wasn't the only thing. And kind of just went from there. My first play that I wrote at 16 was called Confessions of a Catholic Schoolgirl. And then we just... And that was it. And that was it. That's my that's my one play. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and been writing it ever since. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. That is... That's fantastic. So, so dad knew you were a writer. Dad knew you were writing things. Yes. You were squirreled away somewhere writing. Uh and he just he just gave you this gift that's so that's so wonderful it is and also one that literally my both my parents just like and me would not understand what it is to actually make a life in theater mm -hmm. you know it was like because broadway was what you think you're going for mm -hmm. that i think especially from a working class perspective is like of course, that will be the thing that is the right. job. And so when I went to undergrad for playwriting, <laughs> we kind of thought that it was going to be a, a smoother ride. And when I was in undergrad, I realized very quickly that that would be not the case, essentially, that it was going to be. It's. It, I had no idea like the actual politics of theater and how hard it would be because theater as an institution sets itself up to be really hard to be able to survive in, especially if you aren't being, you don't have the monetary means to be supported and, you know, have to support yourself, all that stuff. If you knew then what you knew now, would you have stuck with it? I mean, I think about that all the time, actually. <laughs> um, and, I'm glad that I've stuck with it and that I've learned what I've learned. And I really can't see myself doing anything but creating art. But it is, as somebody who had to hold down full-time day jobs that were simpler in that you do the tasks that are assigned and at the end of the day you clock out and that's it, I do sometimes fantasize about that life. And fantasize about like, oh, I could just go in and, and like nine to five and then that's it. And what I learned while doing, so I did make the leap into freelance in June 2019 after 
eight years, I think, of just like day day jobs on top of theater. And what I noticed is that there's still pain involved. Uh, like there's like theater pain, mm-hmm. but at least it's mine and not like tethered to a company that I have to like please in order to not be fired or not get a paycheck. So at least there's that. Mm-hmm. Even though sometimes I'm like, can I get a spreadsheet? I would love, <laughs> I would just love to, to like analyze something. Please, you know. Have you thought about writing a script in the form of a spreadsheet? I haven't. <laughs> There's not a thing that has crossed my Killer mind. Killer idea. It is. Killer idea. I'll, I'll gift that one to you. <laughs> I'm full of these great ideas, by I the way. I love it. Um, so we're, so when you when you took that class and you wrote that first play, Confessions of a Catholic Schoolgirl. Yes. Did I get that right? You did. Uh, were you like... Did you find that you just had an aptitude for writing dramatic work, like it just clicked? Um, yeah, it really did. When I was when I was writing my short stories, I would emphasize the dialogue versus any descriptive things, <laughs> tissue that make up a, a prose. And but I didn't realize that until I was writing plays, and it was so natural. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of it has had to do and still has to do with how I didn't feel like I had a a voice in a lot of situations mm-hmm. even as a child because you know the themes of that play was bullying so I was very much bullied as a teenager child and then as an adult learning um playwriting and and like how to write plays I was in, and I talk about this all the time, so it's not, I hope it's not weird, but I, I was in two back-to-back abusive relationships that really took away my voice and that I was, at the time, didn't realize was trying to figure out through theater and through dialogue. Mm-hmm. So uh, being able to give other people dialogue was helping me understand that I wanted dialogue and that I didn't have it in my everyday life because of this, this these situations that I was in. Mm-hmm. I, it's so odd to be talking about it because I literally, my, my solo show is about this. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, like, it is about this. Um, so it's just, it's all connecting full mm-hmm. circle. Mm-hmm. But you weren't aware of it at the time that you were sort of like working through this stuff? No, not at all. Yeah. I didn't even know I was in abusive situations. I thought it was normal yeah. what was happening. Yeah. So. You know, I was just like trying to go with the flow and make the best out of a a tense situation, which it wasn't tense. It was abuse, but I had no idea. Right. Did you did you ever have that moment early on where you uh, you made the declaration (laughs) that you were a playwright? No, that was a whole other thing, because even in school, the, the program I was in that was just like we are teaching you how to be a dramatic writer, to be fair. So we are also learning screenwriting um, as well as playwriting. But that was even up for debate where we'd ask our teachers, like, when are we playwrights? And they'd be like, oh, well, oh, you must just continue. You know, the answer is actually like after you write your first play, you're a playwright, in my opinion. Sure. But the teachers were like, giving answers that you just couldn't tie down. You can't tether them to anything you know it was just very frustrating so I don't know if I even out of 
so I went straight from undergrad to grad mostly because I didn't know what else to do and mm-hmm. there wasn't anybody giving advice. And so af- out of grad school, like two, it took two years out where I was like, wait, okay, I think I'm a playwright now. You went all the way through grad school and were you, was grad school, folk, was playwriting? It was theater, a general theater, okay. but I definitely pissed off the program because I took mostly playwriting classes mm-hmm. and they were like, you shouldn't do that. And I was like, I don't care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At that point, I was like, I don't care. <laughs> it's really interesting to me that, that you had a teacher that was sort of like resistant to giving you permission to self-identify as a playwright because I remember what a pa- I had the opposite experience where a playwriting teacher sort of forced me huh. to, to declare I am a playwright wow and I had been yeah I'd always been always been a person to have you know day jobs mm-hmm. and still do and but I at this point I had been writing for like a year and I had written a, uh, tons of shorts and I had written uh, one full length and I was kind of writing on the regular, uh, but I never thought that I earned that mm-hmm. right to say that I am this thing because this thing to me is like special. <laughs> uh, but then this teacher was just like, say it out loud, declare it. And it, he he knew what yeah. I didn't know was that when I, when I go through the act of actually saying it out loud, it changes me. Yeah. And it, it completely did. Yeah, and uh, ever since then, I've been proudly declaring when people ask me what I do, I'm oh, I'm a playwright. Yes, I don't I don't pay my bills with playwriting, but right. I don't define myself by the thing that I do to pay my bills. Yeah, so I want to go shake that teacher. You have. <laughs> it was uh, all of the teachers. Yeah, it truly was, and also the playwriting program wasn't well structured. I think because they really had only one full-time playwriting person but like three screenwriting teachers and Mm -hmm. once you learn screenwriting like the form there's not much else one might be able to learn in my opinion as somebody who went through it and for playwriting I was often I was writing plays that didn't adhere to that playwriting teacher's aesthetic Mm -hmm. and instead of trying to give me plays that might or you know point me into the direction of teachers who might match me aesthetically they just tried to make me match them mm-hmm. and their aesthetic instead and that was so fresh it was like four years of that mm-hmm. <laughs> where I was just so frustrated and I mean I can't speak for the other students but I know I it wasn't a one-on-one conversation it was more like these lecture conversations where I was like well when can you call yourself a playwright right right all that fun stuff yeah uh, when did you start to find plays that sort of spoke to you? My first play that I was like, oh, maybe I do belong here is when I saw a reading of in 2008 and it was Jesus Hop the A-Train by mm-hmm. Stephen Adley Gerges. And I was like, oh my God, mm-hmm. <laughs> look, it's my my home is on stage. You know, like the things that I recognize are on stage and the dialogue is the music that I understand. And so that literally, I was like, and I just went to that. I had gotten an internship with The Lark. And so I was more embedded in theater during the summer. Mm -hmm. And so I was like able to go 
I, I knew more, like my ear was more to the ground than it mm. was in like this undergrad situation. <laughs> um, and so I was able to see it. And that's when I was like, I, okay, great. Mm-hmm. I, I think, I think, I think. And just kept seeking out plays that were more now, the, the now of to the early 2000s, which, you know, that was where, or at, I guess mid to tens i don't know yeah whatever that's called but i was like oh i have to do this on my own (laughs) got it so how did uh how did this impact your own writing at the time seeing that i was like there's more things that are possible let me try to explore them and and put them in and i i also do need to shout out um they were able to they did say like oh i guess we should like get other playwrights to come in but they would only bring them in for a semester Mm -hmm. and jordan harrison was a playwriting teacher that helped unlock that too and in undergrad for me um while i was working on a play he just kept pushing me to like explore my own voice Mm -hmm. and do what i wanted to do with the play and um that's that really helped open me up too so thank god for jordan harrison yeah shout out jordan harrison i i I remember really struggling with this concept of voice when it was first introduced to me. Like, like I thought my idea was my voice, mm-hmm. you know, and and it is kind of a vague thing, but it took me years to really understand what my voice was and what it what how do how I defined what voice was through my own my own work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I fully agree, and. Th- while I w- loved what I was writing and would throw myself into what I was writing and succeeding at school, I also feel like I was in survival mode for so much of it. So I, I feel like I was in survival mode for the four years of undergrad, the two years of grad, and then two years after that, which is the span of these relationships. Mm-hmm. And so while I was like able to write the plays that, I was like excited to write. I didn't, I couldn't engage with them in the same way because I was just in survival mode without knowing I was in survival mode. And so it wasn't actually until um, Crystal Skillman's class, I took, I was just like, I'm just going to take like a class at Sam French when they were offering classes at Sam French, which I know they're not even called that anymore. But, Mm -hmm. and I took one with Crystal and, she was kind of, she literally, I wrote this really wild play with Greek gods and I don't know what it was, honestly. And she just, she was very supportive of it. And she also said, what are you running from? And that unlocked it for me. Mm. I like, I can still like physically remember being on the phone with her in my parents' old house before they sold it. And her saying that and just feeling the thing unlock in me. And that's when I wrote like a, a play called Super or How Clark Graves Learned to Fly. And it was magical realism in a really like deeply rooted way. And it, it was superheroes. And I was like, this is who I am. <laughs> that's my voice. And so unlocking that just allowed me to like go like deeper into all of these voices and get closer and closer to like what I wanted to tell and, and what I wanted to do and learn that. That's such a great moment. Yeah. I love it. (laughs) 
And I love that it was with Crystal, who's just like the most wonderful person and playwright. Yeah. Big agree. That's great. There, uh, I, you know, through doing so many of these, I end up, I've been talking to so many different people and, and I'm starting to see how much cross-pollination there is. Yeah. Uh, particularly amongst the, the, the New York playwrights I, I've talked to over the years. And it kind of wants me to get everybody together, like in yes. the same place, like and be like, "You talked about you, and you mentioned you, and, yes. and you learned from so and so, and you you attended that person's play, and it was." And uh, I just want to like, I just want to have this kind of like weird playwright party. <laughs> I would be down for the weird playwright party. I think that's one of the best things about being a playwright is that you really. Once you find your people, your people are talking about you mm-hmm. and in good ways and uplifting you in different spaces and in different ways. Although I do think that the inverse is also true and there's a lot of back talking and trying to, you know, tear down other people and playwrights. And I I mean, it's just something that I've noticed is that runs rampant <laughs> people, you know, talking about other playwrights so mm-hmm. i i have seen both mm-hmm. where i just want to uplift that there is a that balance and not just be like yeah it's all happy rainbows when it's like i know that the opposite is true unfortunately it is it is uh and 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 the way i've approached it is that i i can only control what i can control yeah so i want i want rainbows so i try to <laughs> i try to build rainbows where yes. i can and, and uplift where where i can and uh I guess I'll just say this. What did you do to start to to sort of like cultivate your way, your path as a writer here in the city? Yeah. Like once you started to like figure things out on your own as an artist, like what did you say? Well, now I need to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Um, so while I was in undergrad, again, with that working class background of like, you need to be able to support yourself in the world. That was like my main thesis of like asking teachers that question and like listening to all the the playwrights that they would bring in for like these special like event conversations and, you know, trying to figure out, okay, how do I do this? Because everything else seems to have like a point A to point B and what I really took out of undergrad is that it's point A to point purple, you know, yeah. <laughs> like it's like point A to purple to square and you just have to put it together yourself. And that was like the one thing that I learned. So I was like, okay, that's how I wound up in grad school because I was like, I'm going to apply to try to go- get into like another couple years of learning so I can continue to try to figure out what I'm going to do out in in this real world but in the meantime I started learning about the Playwright Center and their opportunity submissions and started to submit to places though I had no idea what I was doing Mm -hmm. literally like my favorite thing to say because I applied to page 73 10 times before I got into interstate interstate 73 Mm -hmm. but that first time was me just being like I live in Brooklyn and you're housed in Brooklyn. So we should just (laughs) get together. (laughs) Like literally I know I put that into an artistic statement and sent it (laughs) to a company. And I was like, this is great. (laughs) So 
I wasn't afraid to just throw things at the the wall and mm-hmm. fig- and just be like maybe something will stick. And so that was helpful because I was also sending out like some really crappy plays, but I didn't know that they were crap. I was just like whatever. These this play is I've wrote it. You know, I remember submitting a 45-page play with like intense monologues to EST's one act festival because I was like 45 minutes is one act so I had no idea what I was doing I wasn't afraid of anything Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was just like I was only afraid of like not being able to continue on because that was the other thing I learned I was like the other thing that separates people like they build their own paths and they don't stop they don't get bogged down by other things they do keep writing so that was a commitment I made to myself was I'm going to keep writing no matter what and every time I wrote I didn't realize at the time I was actually getting better in terms of structure in terms of like what I wanted to do although the voice that wouldn't click until later I was still getting technically better learning how to do a play write a play um and so when I I kept trying to like pull together all of these things all like throughout grad school while I was also working while I was in this relationship it was just like I look back and I'm like I don't know how I did any of that but I did um and so I graduated grad school and had to work but also was just like starting to figure out what to do new Susan at New George's met with me and she really helped because she I was like I felt fancy and then I felt like oh it's somebody in like the real world is listening to me mm-hmm. and I also that's when I learned about like these other companies that aren't just the off-Broadway houses but companies that are like eager to do work which is what I was eager to do too mm-hmm. and they invited me to like be part of like the jam not the jam but um it was like a one day like we just go in and like make art and then present the art and i was like i feel so fancy and like i'm actually like doing this this is awesome um and so it was just a a lot of like throwing stuff into submissions getting and then i started getting like some warm responses and so i was like that's good (laughs) and kept writing kept submitting kept just trying but the hardest part was having a day job meant I couldn't network and I couldn't see as much theater as I wanted to mm-hmm. because I was like, I have obligations to my day job and also my energy, I guess, which I also didn't really put a priority on. Mm-hmm. So that it was hard is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Uh, I, I think, I think we, I like, we the general we of uh, playwrights need to acknowledge more about the obstacles in the ways of other playwrights and the privilege some playwrights have of um just family wealth yes. allowing them to explore what they want to explore and and you know and that's fine and that's great if you're able to do it I think I think it needs to go acknowledged more though because I think it kind of goes mm-hmm. unspoken. Yeah, you know? it does, and I see people speaking about it, but I don't see as many people who need to be acknowledging it, mm-hmm. acknowledging it, mm-hmm. and speaking about it because that really is something that separates people from being able to do this and not being able to do this, and 
it we should just not have to <laughs> scrape by on theater we should be able to have fulfilling lives as artists without having to scrape by or rely on generational wealth mm-hmm. too so i i feel like it's it's both of those things mm-hmm. have you felt like you've gotten past scraping by or has it continuously been like scraping by in order to maintain a foot in the theater i it feels like scraping by even with all of the accolades and accomplishments that i've had mostly because i still can't get a a a big a bigger production like Mm -hmm. a larger scale production i'm so happy and grateful for every production opportunity I've had, every like reading and developmental opportunity, every writer's group I've been in, every award I've received. And I see it all culminating to not having a larger scale production, Mm -hmm. which is so such a disconnect and something that makes me really frustrated when I think about it, not only in terms of me, but like in terms of other people. Um, and I know that when people look at me, they see, uh, they ascribe a, su- a success story onto me, which is true. I have succeeded in a lot of ways and I have, I don't make as much money as I could. And I like, I'm not shy about saying that if, um, if Freddie, who's my husband, wasn't able to support the two of us with his job, then I would still have a day job um, alongside my playwriting. I'm really lucky that he's the most supportive person in the world in terms Mm -hmm. of me and my career and also like willing to do that for us um, because it means that I do have more of an opportunity to pursue playwriting and you know work as an artist as a writer but it's so frustrating to not be able to not only like make as much money as I would like as well as be as taken seriously Mm -hmm. as I I would like to this is something that caught my attention a couple years ago I mean we had been connected on social media for a while and not sure how far back uh, but I've been following your your career for a few years and watching, you know, awards and like all these wonderful things happen. And then, then you stated something one day about not being able to get an agent. Yes. And I was so taken back by that because I had assumed you must have had one. And and I was like, wow. And you you were you you kind of went on. a a sort of a thread that continued for a period of time about uh, not having representation, not getting representation and having representation reject you. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this is, I can't like, I don't, I understand why I don't like, it makes sense why I don't, but it didn't make sense to me. Um, And I think I told you this, I reached out to an agent on your behalf because this one, this one agent I knew had a great reputation. People I talked to who were repped by them uh, had nothing but great things to say, and uh, so so I was like, this, this is a, like to me, this is like a sl- this is like a yeah. slam dunk. Like you're obviously you're here's a gift. You'd be so lucky <laughs> because look at your roster. Half of your writers aren't writing anymore, right? Oh my like gosh, yeah. like take take this writer who 
won't stop writing <laughs> and won't stop like winning things and uh and then when they passed mm -hmm. i i was like i was like ready to be like carried away on a chariot like <laughs> the wonderful job i did to like like <laughs> make this connection so i was waiting for like the accolades to come my way yeah of course because there's no such thing as altruism <laughs> um but when, but uh, but seriously though, when 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 they passed, I was like, I don't know what what they think. I don't know what goes through. I don't understand the thinking. I, I like, honestly, it, just, it doesn't make any sense to me. That one, I mean, I appreciated that so much first and foremost because it does sometimes feel like screaming into a void, <laughs> or it off yeah. And so to and I do feel like on Twitter there was a bunch of mansplaining happening to me about like agents and stuff and I was trying to explain which is like why why even bother mm -hmm. <laughs> at a certain point. Um um and I felt like I wasn't being listened to, so when you reached out and facilitated that connection, I was I, like that was really wonderful regardless of what happened with the outcome but what happened was pretty standard in my agent search which was i sent them two plays mm -hmm. and the agent read the plays and decided based on reading them that they didn't want to work with me and that's what they said which mm. is great that it's so straightforward in that like this doesn't feel like a, a right match but that's it you know like not even an opportunity to meet and talk and be like this is what these are what my goals are this is what i feel like i can like go in these are all the people i've already made connections with mm -hmm. to not even get that but that agent wasn't the only one there were two others that just read the plays and passed mm -hmm. and that was after my play got on the kilroy's list mm -hmm. so it was really that was just wild. I was it was wild that I got on the Kilroy's list. I felt like, but I also recognized that it was because I sent that play out myself as my own agent to so many people, and and also had a really successful reading of it with the Leah Ryan, which they gave me the prize for it. Um, but I was like, but I if I did that on my own, don't mm -hmm. you just want to work? Don't mm -hmm. you just want to talk to me? Yeah. You know, like that was the most frustrating thing to me. Mm -hmm. um, and then also when people would be like, who are you meeting with? And I'm like, nobody. <laughs> I'm not meeting with anybody because nobody wants to meet with me after they read my plays. Mm -hmm. And that disconnect was just so mind boggling to me. Um, and I, I struggled to get an agent for three years. And thankfully, got an agent right before the pandemic, and he's amazing and gets my work and is very supportive. And like, I'm like, because a lot of people were like, "Oh, having an agent doesn't really matter," blah blah blah. And I'm like, "That's sure. Like, agents don't necessarily work to get you work, but they do help." facilitate a lot of things and also take care of you which is exactly what I wanted which is when that Twitter thread kind of exploded I was I felt like I was being told well you don't need one and I was trying to tell them actually I do and I didn't feel like I was being listened to mm -hmm. which was, was so but it, it's Twitter and I have no ill feeling toward anybody like you're just trying to do the best you can but not understanding because there's 
a, only a few characters to have a conversation. Right, right. And and you're the one that gets to define <laughs> right, 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 whether or not you need or, or should have one. Uh, because my my opinion about having an agent came from coming out of grad school right and getting introduced to agents and thinking i was on like like get the agent and then do the thing right and one of them uh rejected me in the room after a very long conversation but was like here are all the reasons super polite really wonderful i was appreciative of that of the of that meeting yeah and then the other one was uh coffee coffee meeting um to be continued. Right. Let's keep talking. Send me your work. Follow up with me. Uh, that was, <laughs> I'm still waiting. Oh, that was five years ago. What? Yeah. Uh, oh my gosh. So, so like that person never rejected me. Right. Right. So I mean, right. they did. It's sort of but like a, maybe a pocket not. veto. Not right. Like the president just doesn't sign the bill and it gets it gets vetoed without <laughs> them vetoing it. That's kind of what happened to me. Uh, but I, I at some point it was like. Uh, I followed up when you're supposed to follow up. And then it was like crickets. Yep. And then five months later, ran into them, got introduced to them by somebody. They repped. Yep. Oh, you should meet you should meet Brian. And and they were like, Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. We gotta talk. And I was just like, yeah, we gotta talk. Sure, <laughs> we'll talk. I we're gonna talk real soon. I'm sure, yeah. and that we never talked. Yeah. So I came out of that like, I I already kind of understood like it's not like the the sort of like golden chalice or whatever yeah. having one, but um, and I was just like, it's not my time. I'm not gonna get one right now. I'm gonna I'm gonna move on. And so I am of the opinion you don't you don't right. need one. You don't. Uh, if it's important to you, it's important to you. And I wasn't in a position where I was having contract tons of contracts coming in, but then I had a situation two years ago where I really needed, yeah, I really needed somebody, and something fell apart. Oh my Because God. I didn't have somebody, because I was navigating it right. myself, and I don't have the experience, I don't have the savvy, I don't have the know-how that an agent does. Right. Uh, something they could have taken care of in an afternoon. Yeah. Fell apart over the course of like four months for right. me. And when that happened, I was just like, this was the time I badly, badly needed an agent. Yeah. And it would have saved a project for me. Yeah. So, so anyway, there isn't a, uh, you need one, you don't need one. You got to do like, there aren't, there aren't rules about it. Right. right. It's like, it's so, it's so self-defined yes. based on the writer and their desires and their wants. Right. Uh, but it, it's because it's a it's a it's a crucial point in my understanding of you yeah. as a writer and and your journey and what you've been what you've been going through. Yeah, I I feel like theater is really good at gaslighting us, and I don't say that lightly as somebody who is in relationships that I was gaslit. You know, I do see a lot of scary correlations between the way theater functions as an industry and how an abusive relationship functions and I know that's been like a conversation I've seen on Twitter and it's one that I has really crystallized in terms um going through the pandemic and I don't say everybody who does theater are abusers I think that just like the way the industry sets is set up does 
allow for that parallel to be drawn. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it means really going into everything with like a a more critical eye and more critical thinking about what it is I want to do and how I do want to like function in the world and how I would just want to be an artist that makes art and just like protecting myself and my, my energy and trying to help others do the same and like uplift them and listen to them as they need to talk and work through things Mm -hmm. you know i've i oh like i've talked to so many strangers who have become friends in long conversations and details about like the agent situation and um you know how to submit your your stuff and all of those things because i i i'm just like i i didn't know any of this when i started i wish i did and it's as long as you're coming to me with good intentions which i feel like i can suss out I'll help in whatever way I'm able. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like not getting an agent, that journey did feel so gaslighty because it was so much like me reaching out and being like, this is why I need an agent. I I have like all of these like projects, so many contracts. I don't know what, like I could really, I want to get into these things, but don't know like how to do that best. And that, that is like, it was so, such a mind, it was so mind-blowing to, like, not be able to to do that mm. and to be just told, like, by almost every agency except for the one that I'm currently with that they just, they were like, no. <laughs> mm-hmm. No. The one that rejected me um, at the end of our meeting said something that made perfect sense, but it also fed my my confusion around your situation uh because it came before before you they they were like listen we're not in a position to take on somebody like you who um still needs to sort of like right do do something to establish themselves like find a find some footing start to get finalist status at, at things you know, win a little thing here and there, which I had done. I won a couple of awards, but I guess it didn't really have the cachet to them. No shade. Yeah. Um, but but they were like, they named a couple other playwrights who they had uh, dismissed originally and then came back to a couple years later. And they were like, just like these two. And I don't want to name anybody's names because no. they may not want to be dragged into this mess. <laughs> but... um. And they were like, so just like so-and-so and so-and-so writers that I had, I knew. And, and I was like, okay, that's fair enough. I yeah. appreciate that. And you're being completely honest. And and they just said, keep in touch. And I said, how? <laughs> I said, do you want to be Facebook friends? And they were, like, <laughs> they were like, no, no, not that. But periodically when something comes up for you and something you want to brag about, uh, let us know. And I did that. I've done that. Okay. And um, so anyway, like that was my understanding. Right. And so so I saw this example and, and I know I keep belaboring this one, no, no, this no. one subject, but then I see this example of a person who was doing the thing that I was told I need to do, but I wasn't able to do yet. Right. And here it's being done. And and I'm like, this is the writer. Like, this is exactly yeah. what they need to snap up. And and uh, so anyway, that was all just very confusing to me. I think that the the most confusing part for me was feeling like, okay, you know, the first few times it's like, okay, I need to establish myself. I need to establish myself. And then feeling like when I was established, because I do feel like I am established, 
still feeling like I wasn't established and mm-hmm. still being like, well, I must not be established because I'm being told that I'm not. And right. that was the thing that was like the most mind bendy and hardest thing because I kept being like working hard. I'm Okay, I have to work harder then. I have right. to like establish myself more because I am not that yet. But it's also a word without a definition. Oh, yeah. Just like emerging oh my God. is a word. <laughs> the emerging playwright is without definition. Right. So what does it mean to be established? It's just like, right. who depends on who you ask. And it, it really should just come from the playwright themselves. Yeah. You were talking, you talked early on in the conversation about how in 2019, you you decided to go freelance. Can you talk about sort of like what was happening in your life and your your career that sort of motivated that yeah um so working a full-time day job 40 plus hours a week and then also doing theater 40 plus hours a week was starting to become a a bit uh, unattainable Mm -hmm. (laughs) and um so freddie my husband and i got married in 2018 and leading up to that we paid for our own wedding ourselves we didn't have family help or anything so that was part of what was you know we both were working and i was pulling in my my miscellaneous playwright stuff and it was just really clear that i couldn't keep splitting myself and so we worked together to like come up with a way that I could just try it on my own and at that time you know the universe also seemed like it was starting to like support that idea because I um what happened there were just so many great things that were actually happening um you know like a couple of tv I still hadn't had an agent I still not I didn't I wasn't even close I'm thinking about like February of 2019, but um, my play for the love of that had been done by theater of note out in LA. They were able to remount that amazing production directed by Rhonda Cole um, with the, the block party with CTG. And so that was a huge deal. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and that helped me when I was out there, a couple of TV network people like, called me in for meetings and so that felt really good nothing came from them but just the act of that happening was like really important yeah um and i had a workshop out in long beach at the same time that i was able to go and attend as well um so it was like okay things are starting to like move forward and then i also said if you know i i had received two awards the previous year the leah ryan and the dork wilson and so a a lot of things were moving and i was i had a production in new york with spicy witch they had um commissioned me to adapt a shakespeare play and i had adapted measure for measure into the virtuous fall of the girls from our lady of sorrows and that went really well and so i was like for my physical health and also because i do feel like i have this momentum I'm just going to take the leap mm-hmm. and really, you know, I had, because I, this was like years in the making, we had been building up savings and things like that. 
because yeah it was just a wild time 2019 was wild too um but in june i my play was on the kilroy's list and i think a couple of other things happened and i was just like okay this is this is it i'm just going to i'm just going to go for it i'm just going to try and um Oh, yes, this is what I want to say. And I also did feel like I w- was more of that like mythical word established because I had a lot of stuff to back me up. Mm-hmm. I was in page 73's I-73. I, there was just like a lot of stuff that I was doing that I was like, I think that this is it. And so I started reaching out to a bunch of theaters that only accepted un- un- uh, agented submissions and just started saying like, I don't have an agent, but you should still read my work mm-hmm. for these reasons. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them said, okay, and and did because they did recognize things like the Kilroys and like even, you know, CTG, Block Party, like being able to introduce myself in a way that was like, this is who I am. This is what I do. These are the kinds of plays I write. I know that I write them <laughs> like this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Will you read them? Um that's what you know losing the the fear of making anybody on the other end angry because i was asking them to read my work was really helpful and it's not something that i recommend like newer playwrights to do i do think you should have like a bulk of work behind you and ha- you know be able to show that you've been involved in a lot of things but to not have the fear to to reach out and and do that and so um I also was in Nashville Reps Ingram Mm -hmm. New Plays program, which was really great. Um, And in the the fall, MCC did a workshop of my play that was on the Kilroy's Alondra. And that's how they really helped me get agents there. Mm -hmm. And that's how I got to meet my my future agent, (laughs) my current agent. but it was like all of these things that were moving forward <laughs> in a really strong way. And I felt like I was like an inch away from getting a production before the pandemic hit. And then it was chaos for a, a year and a half, which mm-hmm. was fine. <laughs> but that's basically the journey from day job to, to freelance and just living on a on a whim and not whim but you know taking that leap of faith because i feel Mm -hmm. like as an artist you really do have to take it at some point you can set yourself up for the best success and i acknowledge that there's a lot of people who if they're not supported by a a partner or a family like they're not going to be able to do that and i'm really just (laughs) so grateful that i was able to that i'm able to do that and if i have to i'll go back to work Mm -hmm. anytime but hopefully i can keep moving forward weren't you at one point a couple years ago adapting a play into a novel yes is that a thing is that a thing that's still in the works are you working on it um it's funny because february of 2020 was like the best year of my life (laughs) (laughs) because that's when i received notice that i was going to be receiving the the new voices the otis guernsey new voices award and when i got my agent and when i sold my novel so 
February 2020 was great. But yes, I I'm that is still happening. Um, I'm I should be getting edits the final edits back from my um, editor any day now, and that should be published next year. That's amazing. Is this so? Did this book come because of your agent, or did you get it? Oh no, I had gotten it on your own on my own, and I think that is something that helped really leverage. You know that I I was able to get a book deal on my own. So what else? And that is like, I mean, I don't talk to to novelists very often but it seems like getting a getting a book published is even harder than getting a play produced yes agree and it's it's honestly is i don't know if i'll write another novel after this because it's been a it's hard to write a novel i found in exciting ways but also really hard ways it felt like time traveling yeah and plays feel like i'm supported by the structure and with the novel, I felt like while there's a structure and telling the story, it there's so much more in it that I realized. So was it an adaptation of a of a play? Yes. Can you talk about how you did you did you use the play? Was it something you used in 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 writing the book, or was it something you just had in your head? You know, did you no. use what you knew of your of your play in writing the novel? Yes and no. Um, it was, it and still, since it is ongoing as of today, um, I started with trying to do a straight adaptation of the play into the book, and I realized that putting it into a different form demanded that changes be made, mm-hmm. particularly because this is a YA book, and there's a, a lot more, you know, I don't want to say rules, but there are a lot more like considerations to be made for a, a a book for a young audience than in a play. I find like that's what I found. Um, so while I I wouldn't bend on like the main character, I still had to like add more depth to her mm-hmm. than a play needs because the play we're seeing what's given put in front of us. And the novel, we need to go behind everybody. Because what I found is that there's a legacy behind every movement that a character makes in a book that isn't true for a play. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of figuring that out, a lot of changing characters because it just wouldn't make sense otherwise, and changing plot and things like that. It was really... I found it so interesting that I couldn't just do a straight adaptation and that the form demands flexibility mm-hmm. and for things to bend. So I don't know if I would adapt another play. I might start from scratch. That might be easier. Um, but I'm grateful that I, I've i had the experience and that I'm I'm doing it. Uh, I, I took inspiration, and I think a lot of other playwrights took inspiration from you uh, <laughs> in doing this. And... Uh, last last november during like novel writing month i was like i can do that yeah i was i was like (laughs) i i have this play that probably deserves to be a novel more than a play Mm -hmm. uh it's admittedly not like super successful as a piece of dramatic writing Mm -hmm. and i'm like but i think it could be it's got a young protagonist nice i think so i'm like i'm like yeah i'm gonna do it so november here I come. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna spend the month writing a novel, adapting this play into a novel. Three days in, yeah, I'm like, what am I? I am not equipped. I'm not prepared. <laughs> right. I'm not equipped. Right. I have not studied. I have not done the work to do the work, and I w- it was just like hubris. Yeah. Hubris carried me into November. Right. And shame carried me out. <laughs> Well, I, because I was like, I'll just try to do NaNoWriMo. Why not? And I had already written, like, the first full draft. I think the second full draft of the manuscript by then. And I was like, I'll try something new. But then, I like, three days in, too, I was like, wait, why am I forcing myself to do this? Mm -hmm. Just take it easy. You know, like, I was like, I I think that NaNoWriMo is a great thing. And I do hope to do it one day. But I was also kind of like... It's an, a global pandemic. I haven't seen anybody for a year. Like, I shouldn't force myself to write 50,000 words just for fun because it currently isn't fun. It is not <laughs> fun. It is not fun. I wasn't able to write. I was a pretty uh, pretty good almost daily writer for several years leading up into 2020 and 2020 hit, and I was not... I, it all it all went away. I was revising stuff, but not writing anything new until mm-hmm. until your magical month of February, <laughs> like twenty twenty. No, sorry, the February twenty twenty one. Yeah. So yeah. the one year anniversary of your magical <laughs> month, uh, I was finally able to write. So it was like a year yeah. of that life, and I was finally able to write. Um. So what 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 did what did the rest of the year like? What did February happened for mm-hmm. you, and it was amazing and yeah. wonderful. And then March. Yeah. And so what that started this whole life that we're emerging from right now. What is what does this look like for you? What did the like, year look like? This like? past year. Yeah. Um well I was in it was wild because I was in um Louisville the day everything shut down. And it was um through Nashville. We were gonna go see um Morgan Gould's play at um, Humana because she was in the cohort with us and then we were going to road trip from Louisville to Nashville and it all you know the pandemic was spreading the news of it but the trip hadn't been canceled so we were all kind of like I guess this will be the last trip and we got there and um, the minute we landed I turned on my phone and saw that Broadway was shut down so I was like, oh, I guess this is the beginning of it all. And the play that we had gone to see was unfortunately canceled. <laughs> that, like, literally an hour before showtime. And so we were just trying to scramble to get back as fast as possible to our homes because it was just like, what is going on? I just wanted to be with Freddie. Mm-hmm. I was just like, that's all I, I want. And so... Um, that really began the year of being with Freddie 24-7, which was honestly the best thing to come out of the year, getting to hang out with the person I love the most every day without any, like, you know, just being able to be with him. Like, that was amazing. Um, but it was just, I remember, like, well, right now it's so interesting to think back on because it almost feels like it didn't happen which i'm 
I hate that I feel that way because so it's so much happened. Mm-hmm. But I think like the retrospective right now, so much of it was a blur and so much of it was redundant that I think my mind is just like, well, it didn't happen. And I hate mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really do. Um, it was a lot of Zoom, a lot of like readings that happened over Zoom and workshops and also me at a certain point saying I will not do another workshop over Zoom actually so no you know mm-hmm. um was it hard to say no it it was only hard in the sense of advocating for myself because i think there's you know an understanding that you don't say no to opportunity or there's a thought that you don't say no to opportunities, but I have been trying to deconstruct that and have been doing that during the pandemic Mm -hmm. being like, it's not saying yes to every opportunity. If it's going to hinder you and your spirit, like it's just not, that's not good. Don't do it. Mm -hmm. Um, And it wasn't, you know, none of these opportunities were going to be, payments that would make a difference i hate saying that but it's like 50 dollars isn't going to make a difference for me Mm -hmm. if it comes at the cost of my well-being as i interact with zoom and get really depressed off of it and you know all just so many things happened (laughs) with my relationship with zoom like Mm -hmm. that i had to take care of that i couldn't say yes that's worth any amount of stipend let alone something under three figures yeah right um but i was also able to make some great theater during this time like um all for one commissioned granted me a commission to do a short piece with freddie um which is a solo company Mm -hmm. in in new york so we created that together and then we created another one just for fun, like on our own. Um, and I also got to write a piece for MCC in the Parsnip Ship, like a radio piece that was collaborative and sci-fi. And it was, you know, I really loved the the play that I wrote from that. Um, and I was able to finish a radio play with Parsnip Ship. And, you know, I, I was able to do a lot of great digital theater that I really loved. So I, it's so interesting again, like to look back at that year and be like, what, what happened last year? So much happened last year. Nothing happened last mm-hmm. year. <laughs> it's all of, all of that rolled into one. Mm-hmm. Where did the, uh, where did the idea for the solo show come? <laughs> Which show, solo show? The, the one you're working on right now. Yes. Um, so, I made a tweet in June of 2020 that was like, what if we didn't do Shakespeare for five years? And Twitter had big feels about it, <laughs> as you know. Yes. Um, <laughs> I was lucky in that a lot of people were amiable to like having, it seemed like a good faith conversation or I at least was pretty good at shutting down trolls. I don't know what it was, but you know, it was just like, the realization of how much and this goes back to like my education like so much was dictated by Shakespeare as well as just like what has been deemed the classics which are mostly the same kind of story 
mm-hmm. the same kind of storytelling and not enough of other people. Um, and so I, I was just like, I want to write a solo show about that, like about my relationship with Shakespeare and like what that does or what that has done to me. So I started from there. Thank you, Twitter, I guess. You mm-hmm. did one good thing. No, <laughs> um, you did a good thing because I feel like our relationship's also a good thing that mm-hmm. has come out of that mm-hmm. site. Um, but I Fresh Ground Pepper, which is a uh, theater company in New York, they did a virtual thing called a PAL program, which was a accountability. I, I forget what the acronym actually stands for, except for the A is accountability. Mm-hmm. So they basically paired us after we all filled out a survey, like they paired us together to like make whatever art we wanted and hold each other accountable to like what that might look like. And so I said, I'll just start, you know, writing this solo show and like see what happens. And so I wrote a couple of um, pieces from it. And as I was writing it, I realized, oh, it's not just about my relationship with Shakespeare, but it's also about these abusive relationships that I was in and how they're part, they're like intricately entwined with my origin story as well as Shakespeare, because that was what I was given as a guide. And so it kind of just escalated from there and Mm. started you know it became it has become a version that is long and also not done as of today i need to finish i need to write a prologue um and i have my first in-person rehearsal tomorrow (laughs) um but and then we're i'm performing it later in the month of july because i just wanted to do it I just want to do it because that was something that the pandemic also reminded me was that I love performing my own work and I missed it and I put that as a step back as I was focusing on trying to make it as a playwright trying to be established I lost that I can also be a solo performer Mm -hmm. because I don't think that this industry really rewards hyphenates that much you know they don't really say like, yes, you should be a performer and a playwright. Mm-hmm. It's more like, which one are you? Yeah. And now I'm Stay like, stay in your lane. Yeah. yeah. Now I'm like, I'm, I'm both. Y'all have to deal with it, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so. So do you? Are you, so what's the context for the performance you're doing, of it? So I'm. It's like a public performance. It is. Um, I'm really excited because this. The theater called the Crane Theater on East 4th Street. Um, It's one of, to my knowledge, you know, the oldest theaters down there. And you can, like, rent it out. And they have a lot of, like, residency programs and things like that. And it's actually the first theater that I rented out on my own after grad school to do a reading of one of my plays there. Mm -hmm. So it's always, like, been special in that way. And it's also the the last place that had one of my plays before the pandemic in February of 2020 step one theater project was doing uh, a five night run uh, as part of the frigid festival of mahogany Brown and the case of the disappearing kid. And so to come back to it with this two night only perform Mm -hmm. in person performance of a solo show, it just feels like, incredible and like exciting and i can't wait Uh, yeah it's there's in person and streaming 
for it. I'm super nervous because I don't know how I'll be able to memorize it because I still haven't done that yet. You haven't, you haven't finished writing it yet? I haven't really finished writing it. Well, it's kind of done. It's just the prologue. What I don't know. But um, I don't care. I'm still excited. I'm just going into it with a sense of excitement and a sense of just like, this is what I want to do, so I'm going to do it. And it's going to be fun, first and foremost. And if I mess up, it's fine because this hasn't happened for me in, in forever. And, you know, for me, it's... It should always be low stakes. It should always be like, are you pleased first and foremost? But it isn't always. But for this, it is for me. Mm -hmm. I'm excited. I mean, it would be nice if that was the measure for all things that we do. Yeah. for allowing me into their home for a couple hours. You should check out Freddie's online shop at tpublic.com. Search for Cafe Con Coffee. That's coffee spelled C-A-W-F-E-E. You will find a bunch of awesome theater-related t-shirts. I own three of them, and you just might have seen one making its way around social media lately. It says, more Vogel, less Mammoth. And learn more about Gina's work at femiagina.com. Music from this episode is from Blue Dot Sessions. The theme song for the subtext is Hi by International Pen Pal. Thank you to Rob Weiner Kent and American Theatre Magazine for keeping the lights on for us. This episode was edited by associate producer KJ Jarbo. Thank you for listening. The play filling me up this month is Perseverance by Kelly Kimball. I love everything Callie writes. You can stream a production of Perseverance digitally at portlandstage.org through the end of October.